Over the last several weeks, we've been making our way together through the epistles of John. And one thing that comes up again and again as we've looked at this letter is John's, John's purpose, why John is writing. And John writes so that his readers can have confidence that they are indeed real Christians. Not fake Christians, real Christians. He wants his readers to be able to have confidence that they are in Christ. And we've looked ahead at different points to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 to see this. And here he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He writes to those who already believe in the name of the Son of God, so that they can know that they have eternal life in Him. In short, he writes to those who are already in Christ. Now this is primarily not an evangelistic letter, aiming to win or persuade those who have not believed. It's for Christians. It's for those who have repented and and believed in Jesus Christ. This idea of knowing that we have eternal life is called assurance. Assurance is what gives us confidence in our salvation. We just came off the 500th anniversary of the start of the Protestant Reformation. It was the October 31st, the day that Martin Luther hung the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg Chapel door. This was one of the primary doctrines, assurance, one of the primary doctrines that was recovered through the Reformation. You see, in the Roman Catholic Church, assurance, it's not possible. To say that you know you have eternal life is tantamount to blasphemy. It's presumptive to say you have right standing before God. All you can do is work harder to earn earn more grace to make yourself more righteous and holy. But to know that you have salvation, that's just that's preposterous. Now Martin Luther, he turned all this on his on its head. He found in scripture that righteousness is not something that we earn. Righteousness is a gift of God something that's given to those who are is. And Scripture teaches us that we can indeed know that we have eternal life. We can have assurance. Brothers and sisters, you can have assurance today. And this is why John writes. John writes so that we can know that we have eternal life. This is in many ways his primary purpose. Now a few weeks ago I mentioned these three tests that John puts forward so that he can know that we are in Christ. And we see these throughout the book. The three tests that John presents are a moral test. So how can we know we're in Christ? He asks, do you obey God? A moral test. The second test that he goes through is a social test. How can you know that you're in Christ? Well, do you love others? And third is a doctrinal test. How can you know that you're in Christ? Well, do you know the truth? Do you know what is true about Jesus Christ? Now this morning's passage is going to focus on, on the moral test test by asking us, do we obey God? The big idea that John presents to his reader in this section is that you can know who you are by what you do. You can know who you are by what you do. John asks, do you want to know whether you have eternal life? Then look at your life. Look at how you live. He asks the question in turn, do you love righteousness? Do you pursue holiness? This is under, an underlying idea in, in much of John's writing. And it informs this question. John has this idea that new birth leads to new life. Funny how that works. New birth, new life. Do you remember back in John's Gospel, in chapter 3? There in chapter 3, we see this guy, Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Jews. This really religious guy. And he comes to Jesus at night in secret. 
And Jesus tells him that you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is confounded by this. He's like, that, that's crazy. And, and so he sarcastically asks him. He says, what, like, can an old man go back into his mother's womb? Like, that's, that's nuts. How can you be born twice? And Jesus humbles him. Jesus responds saying, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Here Nicodemus is with all his religious knowledge, and Jesus calls him out for not knowing anything that really matters. And then Jesus goes on to powerfully unpack the purpose of his coming so that everyone who believes in him should have eternal life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Believing in God leads to new life. Now it's with this idea in mind, new birth leads to new life, that John addresses his readers. And let's read our passage together. So we're going to be in 1 John, John's first letter, chapter 3. We're going to start actually in chapter 2, verse 28. So just a couple verses up. This is the Word of God. It's, it's unchanging, always true, eternal, without error. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Thanks be to God for his word. Now, around 150 years ago, a lonely monk made one of the most significant discoveries that's ever been made. As this guy, Gregor Mendel, he studied peas, the vegetable peas. He came to see that all the biological instructions that design how these peas come to be, all the physical attributes they have, they're contained in this certain unitary form, and it's passed down from generation to generation. His discovery was the gene. Now, since high school, I've, I've been pretty fascinated by genetics. God's supernatural design that allows traits to be passed down from one generation to the next. It's, it's incredible. And it points to something that's far deeper and far greater. And this is the reality that John gets at here, which we're going to get to in a moment. But first, I mean, just think for a second. It's, it's crazy that we can pass down traits one generation to the next. Now, for me, I always get a kick out of this with one of my children in particular because we share a pretty strong resemblance. And whenever I step into a context 
where somebody knows him and doesn't know me, people know, oh, you must be Corey's dad right away. Always. I'm, I'm Corey's dad. Now, unfortunately for Corey, he didn't have any choice in this matter. He didn't get to order ahead of time his family traits. Sorry, buddy. He didn't put in for what he thought he should be. I'm sure he'd love to be taller or more athletic, but unfortunately that didn't come with my genes. Now John's writing with something of this idea in mind. And this is why we start in in verse 28. As Christians, this is what we see in verse 29, we are born of God. And those who are born of God, they share certain characteristics. I had an interaction with somebody in my neighborhood not too long ago. I've actually had a few of these interactions where they'll make a comment once they find out that I'm a pastor and they'll say something like, oh, I knew there was something different about you. And it's like, what, like, am I just weird? And <laughs> normally it's no, like, you, you act a certain way. Like, I felt like I could trust you. As those born of God, we have certain family traits. We have certain marks. And in this passage, John tells us that those born of God are to practice righteousness. This practice of righteousness is proof that we are born of Him. It's right there in verse 29. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. This is the big idea of the passage that we're looking at this morning. You know who you are by what you do. You know who you are by what you do. Stated another way, you can know that you're a child of God by how you practice righteousness. You can know you're a child of God by how you practice righteousness. Now pay attention to what John is not saying. He doesn't say what you do makes you who you are. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, if you practice righteousness, then you can become a child of God. No, he's saying that the practice of righteousness is proof of who you already are. The practice of righteousness is proof of who you already are. Now we're going to dig into this idea as we go, but before we get there, we need to look at just who we are, because that's where John starts. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The end of verse 29, John mentions this phrase, born of Him. We are born of Him. And in verse verse 1, the very next verse, it's like John's blown away by this reality. The phrase, see what kind of love, it has this connotation of of being from another country. It's like, this love is otherworldly. There's no love like this love. John is asking, from what country could this love come from? See what kind of love the Father has given to us. It's His gift to us that makes us children of God. Again, it's not something we can earn or have earned. It's God's gift. This love is His his gift to us. Though we were once His enemies, now we're seated at His table. It's a gift to us that that takes place. So it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. You can be his child. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's in your past. It doesn't matter what you're going through. You can be his child. This is good news for hurting people. This is the best news for hurting people. It doesn't matter who you are, how many mistakes you've made, how stupid you think you are, whatever it is, how out of reach from the grace of God you are, you're not out of reach of his grace. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. And if that's you this morning, if you are in a place of, of hopelessness, you haven't repented of your sins and believed on Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can turn to Him. 
You can turn to Him regardless of what you're going through. You can turn to Him and you can receive this love. And you can be called a child of God. But not only can we be called children of God because of this love, we are children of God. So we are children of God. He has adopted us into His family. Now this is a massive, massive reality for us. It's the, really the fundamental description of those who are in Christ. Think about the implications of it. We are children of God. So God is our Father. God, the one who spoke all things into being. The one who is completely holy, righteous, and other than. The God who is perfect in every way. This God is our Father. We can call Him Abba, Father. So God's our Father. Another implication, that makes us His children. We are His children. We are loved, called, and kept by Him. I mean, Jesus shares in the Gospels, He talks about how what father would give his son a serpent when he asked for bread? I think that's what it is. It's like, no, no earthly father would do that. How much more will your heavenly father give you good things as his child? So God is our father. We are his children. And then a third implication from this, this reality of being children of God is that the church is your family. Look around at those who, who, who have placed their hope in Christ. They are your brothers and sisters. And we are called to love one another. And now, John, we, we see it at the end of verse 10. He says that we are called to love our brothers. And he's going to talk a lot about that. We've already seen it uh, earlier in chapter 2. Uh, so we're not going to spend time there, but that's just an implication of our adoption. That we have siblings. And we are called to love them. Who we are as Christians, it's not determined by how we feel at a given moment or the circumstances that we face in our lives. It's not determined by how spiritual we feel at any given time. Who we are as Christians starts with what God says about us. And He calls us His children. Children of God. Now we could spend several weeks unpacking this reality, but we're going to move on to other truths that God has for us in this passage. But if you do want to spend some time just marinating in this reality. I just want to recommend two things. One is a book by Sinclair Ferguson. It's a little book. It's about 120 pages called Children of the Living God. And in it, he walks through just the, the significance of being adopted as God's children. It's a wonderful devotional read. Children of the Living God by Sinclair Ferguson. And then another thing I want to recommend, which I think many of you would be familiar with, is in uh, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. In that book, he has a chapter, chapter 19, entitled Sons of God, and it talks about the significance, the importance of adoption for the Christian. So for further study, you can go there. Sinclair Ferguson highlights why this identity as adopted sons and daughters of God is so crucial when he writes this. I think it's going to be on the screen. It is. The knowledge that the Father has bestowed His love on us so that we are called children of God, and in fact are His children, will over time prove to be the solvent in which our fears, mistrust, and suspicion of God, as well as our sense of distance from Him, will eventually dissolve. Then we will enter into a richer experience of confidence and assurance as the children of our Father in heaven. Brothers and sisters, if you have repented of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you're His child. Now John goes on in verse 1, he says, The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. 
I'll have this experience from time to time when I travel to different places. When I speak or sing at a different event, there are some places that I go and my dad is revered. Like everybody knows who he is, everybody loves him, everybody respects him, and, and I get to be the beneficiary of that. The reality, the reality is that a lot of these times, I wouldn't even be there if it wasn't for him. But since they know him, they love me. At other times, though, I've gone somewhere, and there comes a point where I'm trying to make a connection with somebody, and I mention, oh, do you know who Bob Coughlin is? And they, like, just stare at me, like, no, no clue. And so what happens? They, they look at me no different than they would look at a stranger they walk by in the grocery store. We have this royal status as God's children, but in the world's eyes, more often than not, we're strange. And that's all right, because as John writes, the reason why the world does not know us is because it did not know him. So take comfort in that reality. It's okay to be strange in the world's eyes. It's actually a good thing to be strange in the world's eyes, because we are children of God. Now in verses 2 through 10, John moves into the motivation for our obedience. He's talked about the reality of who we are, and he moves into how we are to live. So John is saying, since you are God's child, since you're born of him, you should act like God's child. You should live like it. When we first started looking at this letter together, we came across verse 5 of chapter 1, where where John writes, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, when I preached on that passage, I'd mentioned how this is really the theological cornerstone of John's teaching. It starts with God. God is light. And now he says in 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, in other words, if you know that he is light, then you're going to practice righteousness. Now, before we, we get deeper into this passage, I just want to share a little bit on practicing righteousness, which is going to come up again in this passage. There are some statements in this passage that some have interpreted to mean that John is teaching that true Christians can be perfect, that they can reach sinless perfection. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, if we took this verse just on its own, then it could seem as if John is saying that true Christians don't sin. So if you sin, I mean, maybe you're not a true Christian. But whenever we read something that that strikes us as odd, we should start by looking at its broader context. What else does this writer say? That's where we start. And then we can look at what does the rest of Scripture say if we still have questions. Now, if we allowed for the interpretation that John is saying that Christians can be perfect, then John would be contradicting himself. Because we look at what else he says, and in John 1, verse 8, he says, 1 John 1, verse 8, he says, if we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So he's already saying, we're all sinful. We can't say we have no sin, otherwise we're liars. So he's not saying here that we can be perfectly righteous in this life. But the true Christian is one who practices righteousness. Do you remember when you learned how to walk? Well, I can tell that you remember, because that's what you do. But if you watch a young child, as they are learning, they fall again and again. But what do they do? They keep on going. Practice does not mean perfection. Practice means you do it over and over and over again. So throughout this passage, this is what John is talking about. Practicing righteousness. 
over and over, pursuing purity, pursuing holiness, pursuing obedience. He's going to pit this against practicing sin. One who practices sin is one who makes a habit of sinning. They give themselves to figuring out how they can sin more and more, over and over again. They give themselves to strategizing how to sin. Sinclair Ferguson, again, he writes, When we become Christians, we do not continue to sin the way we once did. We fail, but we do not deliberately continue in a sinful lifestyle. We may not yet be perfect, but we are different. True to practice righteousness. So with that groundwork laid, let's look at how this text speaks to us today. What claim does it make on our lives? And we're going to look at just two points of application, two uses for the reality of Christ's appearing. Now in the first place, number one, practice righteousness because Christ has appeared. Practice righteousness because Christ has appeared. Because Christ has appeared in the past, we are to practice righteousness. We are to be holy. Now in this first point, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 10. We're going to come back to verses 2 and 3 in our second point. Remember how John began his letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This is the very first verse of this letter. He starts off this letter by reflecting on the historical reality that Christ came. It really happened. We've seen it. There was a man who once walked this earth who was fully God, and he appeared so that he could accomplish certain things. John follows the same structure in, in these verses, in verses 4 through 7 and verses 18, 8 through 10. We're going to see John highlight the seriousness of sin, the reason Christ appeared, and then how this affects how we're going to live. This is 4 through 7, 8 through 10, two sections. And he talks about two things that Christ's appearing accomplished. That gives motivation for us practicing righteousness. We see the first thing that his past appearing accomplished in verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. This is fundamental to why Jesus came. He came to take away sins. John defines sin for us in verse 4 by saying that sin is lawlessness. Sin is not just missing the mark. It's not just something that is wrong because God has commanded us not to do it. Sin is wrong because it is against who God is. This is the nature of sin. Sin is contrary to God's nature. Church, we have to live in light of this reality. Sin is lawlessness. That means there's nothing good in sin. So it doesn't matter how small a sin might seem, it can't bring about any good. That means that's what nothing good means. Nothing good in sin, it can't bring about any good. It can't bring about any true pleasure. It can't bring about any true peace. One One man once said, sin cannot be good, and so it is not to be chosen at any time. It can't be good, so don't choose it. Oftentimes our understanding of sin is distorted because we only think of it in terms of consequence. We weigh whether or not we're going to sin based on what might happen when we sin. So we think about, oh, well, I don't want to hurt others, so I'm not going to sin. Or we think about, well, I don't want to have to deal with any of the consequences that might come from this sin, so I'm not going to sin. Or it's just like, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm not going to sin. But it's all rooted in what might come. But like John shows us, sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is contrary to the very nature of God. 
Sin does not become lawless. It is lawlessness. It's a violation of God's moral law. In the 17th century, Jeremiah Burroughs, he put it this way. He says, As far as sin appears, it holds this forth before all and speaks this language. This is what sin says. There is not enough good in God that is the blessed, glorious, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable good and fountain of all good. There's not enough good in Him. Yet sin makes this profession that there is not enough good in God to satisfy this soul. That's sobering, sobering word. That, that is what sin is. It declares that there is not enough good in God to satisfy this soul. If God is the greatest good, then why would we be satisfied with something else? Why would we look for satisfaction in anything else? If God is the greatest good that exists, then sin in its very nature is the greatest evil. This should be our primary motivation in fighting our sin. Our primary motivation is to look to God. Sin doesn't just look to destroy us. Sin looks to destroy God. But thanks be to God, this is why He appeared. Because Christ appeared in order to take away sins. And sin was no match for Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. When John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching, he cries out, Behold! the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ did this by taking on our shame, by taking on our sin, by taking on our curse. The prophet Isaiah, he testified to this more than 700 years before Christ's death. He said that the Lord's servant bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And this is just what Jesus did. He appeared to take away sins. All while he was completely without sin, As verse 5 goes on to say, He was the innocent one, the holy one, the pure one, but for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Peter writes, the Apostle Peter, he writes, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. This is how... This is how Jesus takes away sins. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So this is the purpose that Christ came, to take away sins, that we might live to righteousness, that we might practice obedience, put on holiness. Christ appeared to take away sins so that we might be like him, practice righteousness as he is righteous. Now, the second thing that Christ's past appearing accomplished, we see in the last part of verse 8. Verse 8, John writes, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. While Christ's appearing to take away sins deals with the law of God, deals with the nature of sin, John notes that Christ's appearing also deals with the origin of sin, where all sin gets started, and that's in the works of the devil. Here we see John go back to the idea of family traits. But this time he begins with the devil. The devil has been sinning from the beginning, John writes. So if you make a practice of sinning, then you are showing yourself to be a child of the devil. Now what does it mean that Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil? We know from experience that the devil isn't now destroyed. But we do know also that there's a coming day when Christ's triumph will be full and final. 
But that's not the destruction that John is getting at here. John's not talking about Christ's first appearance and how it annihilated the devil, made him go away. Rather, he's talking about Christ appearing, rendering the devil inoperative, taking away his power. He's without force. He's not broken, but he's got no power. Now, one theologian comments, he says, the devil is still busy doing his wicked works, but he's been defeated, and in Christ we can escape from his tyranny. And we can escape because Christ came to take away sins, and Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. We see the Apostle Paul unpack both of these in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. It's not just John that has this idea. This is God's idea, and he makes it clear through a lot of guys. Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Christ appeared to take away sins. It's like the the hymn says, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. So Christ appeared to take away sins. And then Paul goes on. Verse 15 of Colossians 2. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Destroyed the works of the devil. Disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I heard one preacher once describe the reality for us as sinners. It's as if we've been caught in in a holdup. The devil comes and wants all that we are. He wants our soul. And we too easily give in. We think, yeah, it's not so bad to surrender ourselves to sin, surrender to the world, because we just want a nice, comfortable life. And dealing with like a holdup, that, that gets a little messy. So we'll just give in. But we forget one massively important reality. So while we're in one sense being held up by the devil, we forget that the devil, this is what the preacher said, he ain't got no gun. <laughs> Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to disarm the rulers and authorities by triumphing over them in him. The devil has no gun. When we recognize the lawlessness of sin and its origin in the devil, then we have to respond by recognizing that our practice of sin flies in the face of our identity as God's children. It mocks and rejects the only one who is entirely good and can bring everlasting peace and joy. And so this is why today, church, today, we are to practice righteousness. Because Christ has appeared. Those who are children of God cannot make a practice of sinning. Those who are children of God, they don't practice sin, they practice righteousness. You can know that you are a child of God because you practice righteousness, and you practice righteousness because Christ has appeared. So Christ has appeared to take away sins, to destroy the work of the devil, and so we practice righteousness. But John goes on, and this is our second response to Christ's appearing. Number two, practice righteousness because Christ will appear. So Christ has appeared. And number two, practice righteousness because Christ will appear. Because Christ will appear in the future, we are to practice righteousness. We are to be holy. Look with me at verse, verse 2. 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, 
We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When he appears, we shall be like him. Remember earlier how I said this foundational idea for John that new birth leads to new life. Those who are born of God who have been made his children, they're to be like God. And while God has created man in his image, sin has marred and distorted this reflection. It's not good and pure as it was meant to be, but salvation acts to restore this image. And it begins with the new birth, it begins with regeneration. Here we're given a new heart, a new nature. We've been given a new self that we're to put on. You'll see this all throughout Paul's epistles. Put on the new self. And God is at work throughout this life that we're in now, renewing ourself after the image of its creator. And this is a lifelong process. It's called sanctification. The process of becoming holy. Our sanctification, it will never be complete in this life. But when He appears, it will be. We shall be like Him when He appears. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. When He appears, we shall finally and fully be like Him. We shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Now this begins to happen when we're adopted into God's family. But one day we shall see Him fully as He is. There's this beautiful verse in 2 Corinthians 3 where Paul writes in verse 18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We hear in John that we don't fully know what we will be because Jesus is still going to appear again. C.S. Lewis has this really fantastic illustration of this idea. And he tells a story of a woman who's thrown into a dungeon. And while in that dungeon, she gives birth to a son. Now that boy sees nothing and knows nothing but the walls of that dungeon. The straw on the floor and and a little bit of sky that he can see through the grate. But his mother, she's an artist, and she managed to smuggle in with her paper and pencils. And so she holds on to this hope that one day she's going to be freed from this dungeon. One day she'll be able to get out into the world and she will bring her son with her. And she wants to prepare her son by describing the world outside. So how does she do that? Well, she talks about it, but she also draws. She draws picture after picture with this pencil and paper. She draws waves crashing on the beach. She draws rivers and mountains and and cities bustling with activity. Now the boy... All he knows is this dungeon. He does all he can to understand and believe her. But it's hard for him to imagine anything that's more interesting than what's in that dungeon. Because he knows nothing else. But one day his mother realizes that all this time, the boy hasn't really understood what the drawings were meant to do. She says to him, you didn't think that the real world was full of lines drawn by pencil, did you? And the boy says, what? No pencil marks there? He can't conceive of a world that does not have pencil marks everywhere. All the boy had imagined as reality just goes away. It vanishes. But he doesn't understand that reality in colorful three dimensions is so much more glorious than the pencil lines could ever be. Lewis writes this. He says, 
The child will get the idea that the real world is somehow less visible than his mother's pictures. In reality, it lacks lines because it is incomparably more visible. So with us. We know not what we shall be, but we may be sure we shall be more, not less, than we were on earth. Our natural experiences are only like the drawing, like penciled lines on a paper. If they vanish in the risen life, they will vanish only as pencil lines vanish from the real landscape. Not as a candle flame that is put out, but as a candle flame which becomes invisible. Because someone has pulled up the blinds, thrown open the shutters, and let in the blaze of the risen sun. What an incredible hope we have. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. We will know true reality. Then verse 3 says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is our lifelong practice, purifying ourselves. Now the reality is that only Christ's blood washes us finally clean. And this is what John has already said in in chapter 1, verse 7. He says, The blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. But we also are to take part in being made pure from the power of sin. And we see this idea throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament in particular. For example, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Practice righteousness. From the beginning, God has called His people to be holy as He is holy, to be pure as He is pure. Think about a a bride that's getting ready for her wedding day. She prepares herself for that. She doesn't say, I don't really care what I look like, or he won't care what I look like, or anything else. I mean, it's like, no, she gives herself to being ready, preparing herself for the bridegroom. She purifies herself. She dresses in white. This is meant to be a picture, a picture of, of Christ's bride. We are to purify ourselves, to be pure as He is pure. This is how we are to live, practicing righteousness as we look to Christ. Because, it's because Christ appeared, and because Christ will appear, that we practice righteousness. John Stott writes this, he says, Unrighteous conduct is unthinkable in the Christian who has grasped the purpose of the two appearings of Christ. Unthinkable. The fact of His first appearing and the hope of His second are both strong incentives to holiness. John's call for us today to righteousness is not just try harder. Our motivation for pursuing righteousness lies in God. It's in His character. It starts with Him. We pursue righteousness because of Him. It's found in Him. So we live in the freedom and the joy that this brings. Trying harder cannot make you His child. It's His supernatural love that does this. See what kind of love the Father shows to us. And then because of who we are, we are to live as His children. John's call to practice righteousness is really this. Look to Christ. Look to Christ who has appeared and who will appear. Fix your eyes on Him. Let the Word of Christ dwell in richly, as Colossians 3 says. Another word for this idea, Jesus talks about it, John talks about it, abide. Abide in Him. It's by abiding in Him that we exhibit these family traits. We become like Him by fixing our eyes on Him. Because when we see Him as He is, we shall be like Him. 
One day that's going to happen fully and completely. And we long for that day. But until that day, we get ready for it. We prepare ourselves for it. We anticipate that day by practicing righteousness. Beloved, those loved by God, fix your eyes on Him. Fix your eyes on Him. We sang earlier uh, the song, Not In Me. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by Him. And He alone can give me rest. Brothers and sisters, rest in Him. Rest in the One who was perfect, who was without sin, who came to take away sins, who came to conquer the works of the devil so that we might be His children and we might live as His children by practicing righteousness. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, thank You for the revelation of Jesus Christ who has appeared, who, though He knew no sin, You made Him to be sin, that we might be Your children. We might have His righteousness. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on You. Help us to abide in You. Help us to rest in You. And as we look to You, Lord, give us grace, even this week, to pursue righteousness, to practice righteousness over and over and over and over again. Help us to honor You, to be holy as You are holy. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.